We are emphasizing how everyone has a story to tell, including you and Dr. Fred Luter, who is pastor over at Franklin Avenue Baptist Church and a dear friend of this congregation. And uh, I love Fred, but I love Jesus more, I'm telling you. And uh, Jesus has changed my life. I'm so glad that as a college student, I was reflecting on that this week, as a college student, a freshman at Baylor, I was brought to the realization that Jesus Christ himself is the way, the truth, and the life, that he himself is the foundation, and no one can lay any other foundation than that which is Jesus. It is in the name of Jesus, the apostles said, that this man stands before you whole when asked about the blind man who was healed. And it is in the name of Jesus that this man stands before you spiritually whole. So we're talking about Jesus and we're visiting a supreme text about Jesus and who he is, his personality and how he relates to people as we go to John chapter 4. And so I want you to fall in love with Jesus, to know who he is, really. And people will distract you from the story of Jesus as you talk to them. Because when you get to the part about Jesus, sometimes they get uncomfortable and they'd rather talk about your practice of baptism or how you do the Lord's Supper or your church government or whatever. They have a question to ask and we're going to run into that later on in this very encounter with Uh, the woman at the well, but the key is to keep people's eyes on Jesus, not on the church, not on people, not on doctrine, but on Jesus himself who saves and only he can save. And so sometimes we get distracted from that. And today I want you to know when we say, Jesus, we're calling on your name. He hears. He comes. He sits down by our well to converse with us. He is the living presence in this room. He said, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. So we are in the presence of Jesus of Nazareth, the winsome and wonderful Savior. And as we look in the Scripture, we have not only this account of his encounter with the woman at the well, but we have his living presence to instruct us, guide us, and draw us unto himself. So John chapter 4 now is where we are as we look at initiate contact in the series of story to tell. Verse 5, so Jesus came to a town in Samaria called Sychar near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For the Jews do not associate with Samaritans. In fact, they hated Samaritans. And when they thought Jesus was about half a bubble off, they said to him, 
You are a Samaritan and demon-possessed. They called it, they used the term Samaritan as a pejorative label for Jesus in conjunction with him being demon-possessed. That's what they thought of these Samaritans. It is not going to be too many days after this that Jesus will be taking his road to Jerusalem and he'll come to Samaria and he'll send his disciples on into Samaria to a village and uh, they pick the village and they start looking for a place that will accommodate the band. And when the Samaritans hear that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast, they said, eh, you're not welcome here. And so Jesus just had to go to another village with his disciples. There are all kinds of disputes between Jews and Samaritans. And it's a startling thing here. What happens with Jesus and this woman? Jesus sits down because he is tired. And when the boys say, hey, we want something to eat. We want to go to McDonald's in town. Jesus just sends them on their way. And they go and he remains behind alone. You got to be willing to be alone. All right? Alone is okay. If you're going to go into the town to buy some food, to get some food, you might want the gaggle of boys with you because you feel a little bit secure when you, when you bring your friends along. You're not worried about who you're going to talk to, who's going to be with you. You've got the security of numbers, so the 12 of them are going together. They feel pretty safe going into Samaria, buying some food, taking care of that, and Jesus stays behind. Now, I know about hanging out with the boys because I've got four brothers who are almost exactly my age. We were born in 18-month increments, and so we grew up that way as a little bitty tribe here, a basketball team, and everything we did, we did together. And it may seem strange to you, but I never really have been single my whole life, you know. I got married when I was 19, and so somebody was in the house then. I had a roommate when I was at college. I've never lived by myself. In fact, I had a problem being by myself. Didn't really ever want to be by myself. Until now that I've gotten a little older, I started to appreciate being alone. And when I read Jesus sitting by the well, being alone, I think, I get that now. He's tired. He's probably older than most, if not all, of his apostles. Maybe his body's not as strong as theirs now. And he's weary from the journey. And he sits down by this well. And when they say, we're going into town, he says, go on. It's okay for you to have alone time. I don't think we read this and say, I should never be alone. That's not the message here. I must always be open to people. Sometimes we find Jesus running away from people. Sometimes we find Jesus scooting away from the crowd, heading into the wilderness. It's almost like he's going from grove to grove and rock to rock, trying to get away from them so nobody knows where he is. And when the crowd discovers he's gone, they're frantic. Where's Jesus gone? We want to talk to Jesus. And they make their way around the sea to find him because they want to find Jesus and be around him. And Jesus must surely be exhausted 
just from the thousands of people gathering at the Jordan River to be baptized, all of them with needs. Every time you see him, he's got this noisy, needy crowd all around him, pulling at him, pulling his robe, hollering out to him, Son of David, Son of David, have mercy on me. Who's that pulling on my robe? That's Jesus in the middle of very needy people. And these very needy people are not really appreciative of the needs of Jesus often. They just want to get their daughter healed. They want to get their friend healed. That's all. And once Jesus heals them, it's not uncommon for them to just go away and not even say thank you. So focused are they on their own need. And it's exhausting. Everybody pulling at you, tugging at you, touching your elbow, hollering at you, wanting to get your ear for 30 seconds. Can I just have your attention for 30 seconds? And so he scoots away. He gets away from the noisy, needy crowd and gets by himself. And often he's alone. And that's okay. Alone time is good. I flew with two people that wanted to be alone this week. I mean, they went right to sleep. I was sitting in the middle, and they both just snored away. And that's okay. Sometimes that's what we need. But Jesus is tired, and when he sits down by the well, you may picture him sitting down in a lazy boy recliner, but that's not it, okay? He's sitting on a rock. How long has it been since you sat on a rock? It's not all that comfortable, but he's tired. He sits down by the well. It's hard. It's a rock. He's trying to get comfortable, trying to rest his body. And here comes a woman from Samaria. All the social conventions would be in favor of Jesus just keeping his eyes closed and going on with his business. If he speaks to this woman, he's going to raise some eyebrows. When the disciples come back, they're going to be saying, what? What? You talked to the Samaritan woman? I think they might be just like the Pharisees were when, when Jesus allowed the woman from the streets to wash his feet. And they were mumbling, and they thought, you know, if he really knew who this woman was, he sure wouldn't be letting her touch him. That wouldn't happen. So Jesus is aware as he begins a conversation with this woman that there are those who would say that's inappropriate. That's not right. And Jesus doesn't always challenge social convention. There are times when maybe we ought not to challenge the social convention. But there are certainly times in which it's okay if you raise some eyebrows as you begin a conversation. And Jesus feels that way today. He initiates contact with this woman, knowing some would disapprove. But I tell you, there's a lot in Jesus reaching out to her. There really is. I would think there's a similar thing when you go into the strip clubs on Bourbon Street or you minister in the brothels in your city, Brenda, that the first reaction of people might be is, what are you doing here? Haven't you looked, don't you know where you are? 
And the very fact that you have challenged a social convention, that you have possibly compromised your reputation to be present with people in need, is itself startling. It may be the first impulse of the heart that begins to open up toward what you have to say because you're here. You're here. I still remember that 13 or 14-year-old boy that was at Rivard Juvenile Detention Center, and when I walked into that pod, he came up and he looked at me and he said, why are you here? And I said, well, I'm here to share the word and have prayer. He says, no, no. Why are you here? He asked the question twice. He wanted to know what in the world I was doing in his prison. It startled him. It's okay. It's okay to startle people, to surprise them, and even sometimes to challenge social custom in order to have a conversation. Now, sometimes you need to keep your head down. You don't need to appear to be an unsafe person. But often, we need to be ready to keep our head up when we're alone or when we're traveling and pay attention to the people who come. I am so impressed with Jesus as he interacts with people that he notices them, that he cares about them, that he would receive a man with a withered hand in the synagogue. Now, having a withered hand is an indication that you or your parents were sinful. And so we don't feature these people ever in the synagogue. They stay in the periphery, in the shadows. But Jesus says, hey, you, come to the middle. Come here to the middle. And he has men come up and stand in front of everybody. I want you to know you're in the middle of Jesus' focus. Not in the periphery, not in the shadows. This is who Jesus is. Jesus, we're calling on your name. You're in the middle. You're the target of his vision and his heart. You are. You. The living Lord Jesus is here today to talk to you, to speak to you. To make contact with you. You are in the center of his vision and what he wants to do today. This woman is in the middle of what Jesus wants to do. She is the purpose for which he came. And he sits down and he begins the conversation with her. He asks her for a drink. It's surprising. It's surprising he would do so. It's a startling thing to hear him say. She's startled. She's taken aback. She says, what are you doing asking me for a drink? Don't you know what's going on here? I understand why Jesus is at the well at noon. I was at the Los Angeles airport at 2 a.m. I was sitting on a bench, Janet and I. For three hours, we sat on a steel bench at the Los Angeles airport. One of the most miserable experiences of my traveling days. I do not remember Los Angeles airport fondly. It was a mess. And that's what travel often means. You're out of your routine. You're not enjoying the benefits of what you usually uh, choose. Instead, at noon, you're sitting by a well when the sun is high in the sky. I understand why Jesus is there. He's on a journey. He's traveling. He's not in a routine. He's there at noon. But I don't get the Samaritan woman being there at noon. 
When I get ready to dig in my garden, I dig early, I dig late. I don't wait till the sun is high in the sky and then get out there and go to work. Do you? You wait till the heat of the day to get out there and do the hard work? Carrying water is hard. That's one of the hard things that the women did back then. And Genesis 24 says that they did it in the evening. Why would you do it in the evening? Because the sun's not so hot. It's cooler. And hard work is more pleasant. You're more able to do it when the sun's not straight up above. It makes sense to me that the women in Sychar would go to the well in the evening or in the morning, but not really at noon. That doesn't make so much sense to me. And so people have been asking the question, why is the woman at the well at noon? And maybe there are lots of reasons she could be there, but I think perhaps she wants to avoid social contact. I think maybe she's got her head down. She's going through her routine. She's skittish about contact with people, and going to the well at noon is a way for her to get the water, which she has to do, without running into a lot of people unnecessarily. So Jesus' conversation with her, he's talking to somebody who's skittish, who's not sure if they want to interact with anybody right now. That's how I see her. And Jesus asks her for a drink. Now picture the Savior for a minute. You always picture Jesus maybe supremely powerful. But picture the Savior sitting down by the well, tired and thirsty. He's the king of heaven. He's laid aside his divine prerogatives to become a man among humans. He's taken on this manhood. And he sits down by the well and he's tired. And he says to the woman, say, would you give me a drink? There's a vulnerability here. A humanity here. That I can appreciate in my own time of need. Can't you? Yeah, Jesus, I know what it is to be tired and thirsty. I think about him on the cross saying, I am thirsty. And sometimes you get that way. He says, would you give me a drink? Now, it's a small thing to give somebody a drink. Jesus says, even if you give just a cup of cold water in my name, you won't lose your reward. So there's not much that's less than a cup of cold water. Doesn't cost you anything much. Now it's just a little favor. It's a little movement of your heart to give somebody a cup of cold water. So Jesus asks for a little thing. Would you give me a drink? It's as natural as it can be. This contact is natural. He's thirsty. The well is there. The woman has something to draw water with. It is a natural thing for him to say, would you give me a drink? There's nothing artificial about this. It's authentic. It's authentic Jesus. He's being real. He's being transparent. I'm, I'm thirsty. People want you to be transparent and authentic. You don't have to be perfect to share your story about how Jesus changed your heart. You don't have to be living perfectly in the moment when you share Jesus with somebody else. Every time you share Jesus, you'll be saying to yourself, 
I'm not sure I'm worthy to do this. Maybe you need to go find an expert. Maybe you need to find somebody who's better than me at living the Christian life. Every time you have the opportunity, there's going to be the excuse that comes to mind that says, you're not really qualified to talk to this woman, to talk to this man sitting here next to you. You're not really qualified to share with them your story. And that, my friends, is a temptation that the enemy puts in your heart because you are eminently qualified. And you alone are qualified to share the story of what God has done in your life. Nobody else is qualified to share your story like you are. You are the expert on what God has done in you. And you don't have to pretend to be anything. Not an expert in the Bible, not a theologian, not a great churchman, not a perfect Christian. You don't have to pretend to be anything. All you have to do is with transparency and reality and authenticity tell what happened to you. That's it. Hey, I don't want somebody treating me as if they are a salesman trying to sell me something. I'd like to sell you my religion. We don't want that. We don't want to be manipulated into conversations. Jesus has a simple question, natural and authentic. Would you give me a drink? And it's a safe question. It's not fraught with difficulty for the woman. It's not something that frightens her. It's safe. And I think Jesus is communicating through his demeanor, through his attitude, through his nonverbal language, and through his question, will you give me a drink, that he loves her. There are all kinds of ways in which you open the conversation for your coworkers, your family members, and even strangers by your smile, by your greeting, by your kindnesses, these tiny kindnesses and courtesies that are part of the interaction of humans all over the planet are ways that you express your love for them. And I believe this woman, startled by the question, is turning to this Jewish man and realizing he is opening himself to her. You can let people know that you love them, that you care about them. A mother with a baby, you help her handle something, just helping her with all the logistics. Some of you moms that have two or three little ones this tall, <laughs> you're glad when somebody says, hey, can I carry that for you? Can I put that bag up there in the baggage area? I'll do that for you. Let me do that. Or can I get it down? Can I pass you this water? that you've asked. All these little things prepare the way for further conversation with people around you. And though they are tiny, they are real, and people pick up on them. This is true not only in a witnessing conversation, but in all situations in life. We communicate who we are and how we are and our style of being in the world 
by the simplest indications and the smallest questions. These tiny interactions, they are huge in the human experience. So Jesus asks what is natural, authentic, safe, and loving. And the woman of Samaria says, what is up with you? Peter says, if you live like God wants you to, you're going to hear people asking, what's up with you? What's up with you? Why are you living this way? Why do you act this way? What's up with you? He says it will prompt the question. And it prompted the question from the Samaritan woman. How can you ask me? You know where Sychar is? This little village that's mentioned in the text where the well is? It's the Old Testament Shechem, according to most experts. Shechem is a town mentioned first in Genesis chapter 33, where Jacob and his flocks and his family come, and they pitch their tents before the city of Shechem. And Jacob likes the place enough that he buys a plot of land there at Shechem. It is the plot of land that when he is dying in Egypt, he gives to his son Joseph as recorded in Genesis 48. And so, it records it here, near the plot of land where Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now, when Joseph is dying in Egypt, he says to his family and the children gathered around, he says, I don't want to be buried in Egypt. I want you to take my bones back to Shechem. So they take his bones back to Shechem. Well, this plot of land that Jacob bought from Hamor, the patriarch of this city, Shechem. That's where he dug this well or adopted this well, and it came to be known as Jacob's well. Shechem was not a happy place for Jacob. He had a daughter named Dinah. You might skip over chapter 34 of Genesis when you read that book because it's an awful account. Dinah was raped by a man who lived in this village named Shechem. The patriarch Hamor had a son named Shechem, and he raped Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. After he raped her, he decided that he loved her and he wanted to marry her. And so he came to Jacob and the children, and he said, we want to uh, have Dinah to be Shechem's wife. And the sons of Jacob said, okay, we'll do that. We'll let you intermarry with us, and we'll marry your, your sons and daughters, but there's one thing we want you to do. We can't intermarry with pagans. We want you all to get circumcised. So the town had a meeting. They decided to, all the males would be circumcised, and they did it. And while they're all still in pain, the story goes, Jacob's sons went in there with swords, and they killed every man in the village. They killed them all. They killed Shechem, they killed Hamor, and all their clan, all the males. And Jacob said, because of this, you have brought trouble on me. And it appears that his saying, you have brought trouble on me, became the name of the valley where this well is located. 
It's the valley of Achor, or the valley of trouble. It's interesting that Hosea mentions this valley. You remember the story of Hosea. Hosea is told by the Lord, I want you to go and marry a prostitute, a woman who's been unfaithful. So he goes and he takes Gomer to be his wife. Predictably, she is unfaithful to him. He has a child. He names the child, not my people. No love is another name for his children. She remains unfaithful to him until she goes into the slave trade herself. And God then speaks to Gomer, whose wife has departed and is now in the slave trade and being sold at auction. I want you to go and buy your wife back, God says. So Hosea goes and buys his wife at the slave market for 15 shekels. And he says to her, I'm going to love you. I want you to love me. I'm taking you home. We're going to be man and wife, and I want you to stay at my house. And God said to Hosea, what you did with Gomer is what I do with people I love. Israel, he said, was to be my bride, and she has been unfaithful again and again, just like Gomer. But I keep loving her and drawing her back, this unfaithful bride. And then God says, therefore I am now going to allure her. I will lead her into the desert and speak tenderly to her. There I will give her back her vineyards and will make the valley of Achor a door of hope. There she will sing as in the days of her youth. The valley of Achor, the valley of trouble, which runs by this well, they say, will be a door of hope. And she who was unfaithful and wondered if God had any plan or purpose left for her will find here the song she lost from when she was young, and her song will be restored through the love of her Lord. Think about this woman at the well coming down the valley of trouble to this well. She's been married five times. She's now living with a man who's not her husband. We find all this later. I wonder what she thought in her youth that life would be like. I wonder if she had a song in her heart as a young person full of expectation and hope and expecting that life would deliver on her dreams. And then in a succession of failed relationships and maybe poor choices, she ends up here in this valley of trouble thinking perhaps that the trouble will be the reality for the rest of her life and never again will the song of youth be restored in her heart. Not knowing, though, that there is a God who loves her despite the failed relationships and the poor choices of her life. There's a God who cares for her even though she's been unfaithful. 
And this God who loves her will not drag her or beat her or force her, but allure her, woo her, and love her back into his arms. For every person who feels like they live in the valley of trouble, God loves you this way. This woman at Samaria stands in for us all in her failed relationships, her brokenness, her guilt. And Jesus woos her, draws her, and loves her back into the arms of God. I want you to be open to this powerful love of God made available to you through Jesus. I want you to know that God is not interested in beating you up. He's interested in bringing you in. You say, I feel so much like the prodigal son. That's okay. The prodigal son came back. And he came back not to second-class status in the kingdom. He came back to full authority in the household of his father. Just like you will come if you will return to the God who loves you, woos you, cares for you, and allures you back unto himself. It is a wonderful picture of the character and nature of God, the wonder of Jesus the Messiah, and his ability to restore not only the woman at the well, but you too. He sends out his word to you. He loves you passionately, more than you ever could realize. He wants you back in his house. Bow with me, please. If you feel like you're in the valley of trouble, I want to pray for you. Life's been difficult. Maybe the song is gone. And you don't know if you really ever have a song again in your heart. I'd like to pray for you. Would you just slip your hand up and say, pray for me. I feel like I'm in the valley of trouble. Yes, God bless you. Anyone else? Yes, God bless you. Yes, the Lord bless you. Anyone else? God, I want to pray for these who've raised their hands. Lord, I pray that they will be amazed to discover anew your love for them, unabated, whatever their story might be. God, I pray that they will come running to you, back into your arms, back to your house back to the Father's family where they belong. Lord, I pray for those in the valley of trouble, that the valley would become a door of hope for them as they realize who Jesus is and what he wants to do in their life. God, have your way in us. Holy Spirit, speak your word to us. Jesus, Savior, Son of God, Son of Man, Call us unto yourself as you did with this woman here. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.